Well, I want to welcome you again um, to Copperfield and invite you to join in with us as we study God's Word on this fourth Sunday of Advent. On this fourth Sunday, we are going to be reflecting upon God's faithfulness, asking the question, how can we be sure that we can trust God? We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. If you have uh, your Bible, we encourage you to turn there. If you need a Bible, uh, there should be a Bible in the chair under you, and you are welcome to that. We would love for you to take that as a free gift. Uh, If you don't have a personal copy of God's Word, uh, it would delight us to see you take those Bibles with you. That's why we provide them. Uh, That passage that we're looking at today is on page 911. So Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, is we reflect upon this question of the faithfulness of God. And so I would invite you to stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God as we read this prescript to the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. You can follow along in your Bible on the screen or the chair Bible, which is on page 911. This is what God's Word says to us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You may be seated as we go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon this word this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would guard me from error and that you would bless your people, feed your sheep today. Lord, and if there are any that are among us, Lord, that are spiritually dead, I pray that you would awaken them. You would give them new life through your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord God, as we explore your faithfulness. Lord, challenge the paradigms that we've set up in our mind, the ways that we've attempted to box you in. Renew our hearts, Lord. Revive your work within us. We ask this in Jesus' holy name, the name that is above every name. Amen. So I said I want us to ask the question, in reflecting on this fourth Sunday of Advent, on the faithfulness of God, how can we be sure that he's faithful, that we can trust him? How can we be sure that he is faithful and that we can trust him? And so what I want us to do is look at these verses, one through six, broken up into two ways, and see what the Apostle Paul would say in answer to our question. I believe that much of the book of Romans is written to demonstrate the faithfulness of God to his word. If I were going to give you a long overview of the book of Romans, or a quick overview, I guess, 
Romans 1, chapter 1 through Romans 11, is an argument for the faithfulness of God to the promises that he made to Israel as it relates to the ingathering of the Gentiles into the people of God. He is answering these questions, these dilemmas that they have regarding whether or not God has kept his word or not. And so Romans 1 through 11 is an exposition of the faithfulness of God. But what we find at the beginning of most of Paul's letters, is a preview of what he's going to talk about. So I'm not saying that you can just read the first six verses of Romans and you get the whole picture, but I do believe that what we see here is that this idea of the faithfulness of God is inextricably related to the gospel of God, the importance of understanding who God is and what that means for us. So, The first point that I would have us walk away from in this passage is this. The gospel is God's good news for the world. The gospel is God's good news for the world. And I believe you see this in verse 1 and then in verses 5 through 6. The gospel means good news. That's what the word means. And so in verse 1, we find that this gospel is constrained. It is God's gospel. It is the good news that he has for the world. Notice what Paul says about his own ministry at the end of verse 1. He said, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. God is the subject of the gospel. The gospel is telling us something about his grace, his mercy, his righteousness, his patience, his goodness, and his expectations for us. Paul exposits this all throughout the book of Romans. He's going to tell us that both Jew and Gentile alike, regardless of whether or not they have received the law on Mount Sinai or the law is embedded within their heart, they are guilty before God. Romans 3, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, everyone is in need of a Savior. And the question is, is how will we be saved? Is it going to be through our own performance? And then Romans 4 tells us that salvation, justification, being declared right before God, comes on the basis of faith. And the example that Paul uses is Abraham. Abraham is declared righteous before God 400 years before there's ever a law that he could keep. Now, If you want the abbreviated version of this, go read the book of Galatians. Paul does the same thing here. How is it that a man can be said to be righteous 400 years before there's a law? It must be a righteousness that is given to us by God. And how does it come to us? By faith. And that is the message of Romans. God has kept his promise. Sinners can be justified, Jew and Gentile, not by cleaning their life up in their own effort, but by putting their trust in Jesus. And when they do this, according to Romans 8, 1, they are in Christ. And when they are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. That is wonderful news if you've ever felt condemned. To know that God in his mercy has provided a way for you in your sin and rebellion against him, to be saved, to be forgiven. This is a free gift of God's grace that has appeared for all who would receive it, and it is available to Jew and Gentile. So hence the point, the gospel is God's good news for the world, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile, to the barbarian, the sick, the enslaved, the free. Anyone that would receive it 
can be saved. And so Paul would stress that this is the gospel that I have been set apart for, that I am an apostle of. The gospel is God's good news for the world. It's good news for you this morning. But how does this good news relate to the idea of the faithfulness of God, which is what we are mainly looking at this morning, given it's the fourth Sunday of Advent? This is where we then move to the second point. If the first point of this message is that the gospel is God's good news of salvation for the world, the second thing that we find in verses two through four is that the gospel reveals God's faithfulness to his promises. And this is where we are going to spend the majority of our time. And we're going to look through some of these key verses in two through four. And I want to begin with this phrase or this clause. The gospel he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I want you to think, we're thinking about the faithfulness of God. What does it mean for someone to be faithful? They keep their word. So we talk about a faithful marriage, right? And in a faithful marriage, what is is being said? We say, look at that faithful husband, that faithful wife. It's that they made vows to one another before God and other people, and they keep their word until death do we part. There, there is a commitment there. That's we go. That's that's faithfulness. Now we are not perfectly faithful as we would desire to be. We recognize that as sinners, when we say "I do," as one of the popular book authors states, that there's going to be a need for gospel and grace to renew our relationship with one another. So don't think of God's faithfulness the same way we think about our faithfulness because God is faithful perfectly. So, the gospel he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What does Paul have in mind? He's talking about the promise as it relates to King David. You know King David? For me, with King David? God made a promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17, which we're not going to read this morning. But in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, God makes a promise to him. David says, I'm going to build you a temple. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And on the throne in that house, one of your descendants will sit and he will reign forever. So there's an expectation reading 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, that it's going to be an immediate descendant. You look at Solomon, and Solomon really is impressive for a while. Then he marries almost every woman in the ancient Near East. Hence the book of Proverbs where he's telling his sons, sons, don't be like me. Learn from my mistakes. And eventually, as a result of his parenting, the kingdom divides between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. We're not going to get into all those details. It divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and things are not well. And then by the 6th century, about 586 or so, the last vestige of this nation is taken off into Babylonian captivity. And you're asking the question, well, God, you said that you were going to build me a house, and on that, in that house there would be a throne, and on that throne I'd have a child that would sit forever. And that didn't happen, so did you keep your word? That's a, that's a reasonable question, right? Did you keep your word? You told me you would do this, and it didn't come to fruition the way that we thought. So that, I want you to think, put this in your mind, that promise was made in about the 11th 
century BC, okay? 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, about the 11th century BC during the reign of King David. Then, a few hundred years later, you had prophets, Isaiah 1, who repeats the promise that was made to David, and Isaiah repeats this promise in about the 8th century BC, so roughly 250, 300 years after the promise was made, okay? Y'all trucking with me? I know timelines are just exactly what you were hoping to do this morning. But this is significant for your spiritual health, I promise, I promise. The point is not to talk about timelines. Isaiah repeats the promise. Then Jeremiah repeats the promise about another 100 years or so later, give or take. So you have a promise that's made in the 11th century, that's repeated in the 8th century, then it was repeated in the 7th century, that there is going to be this Davidic descendant that comes, the root of Jesse, that would be raised up and sit on the throne. Now, Paul understands the promise being fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, who was born roughly, I'm going to give you a range here real quick, who was born roughly between 9 B.C. and 4 B.C., okay? That is the the biggest span of possibilities that we have out there. So from your liberal to conservative um, Bible scholars, that's kind of what they they contest is this idea that from between 9 B.C. and 4 B.C. Now, without overtaxing us with timelines and math this morning, when was the promise given? 11th B.C., which is like the 1,000s, okay? I know that can get us confused because it's 11th B.C. and whatnot, okay? When is the promise fulfilled? A thousand years years later. Was God faithful? He was faithful. The promise was given a thousand years before it was fulfilled. I want you to let that sink in just for a moment. A thousand years passed from the initial promise given to David to the time of its fulfillment in Bethlehem. A thousand years is a very, very long time. You think you know what a thousand years is. Like, go try to do the genealogical work to dig up your family history, okay? I've done this. I've tried this. And about as far back as I can get is like 1,200 years. Because, you know, they weren't like crazy concerned about keeping really detailed records when they were at war all the time (laughs) in Scandinavia, wherever it's at. I don't know. Maybe you come from a background that's far more interesting than mine, but at one point, my family was just like, we're just trying to survive. Like, it's as as far back as we can get. And I don't even have a concept of how far that is. Now, you're you're a first century Jew, and you have this expectation that one day the Messiah is going to come. And it was a thousand years before. Y'all just be honest. Be be honest like I'm going to be honest. You would feel a little bit slighted if 500 years after that promise was given, it still wasn't here yet. And you would question the faithfulness of God. But these Jews were longing, looking with a hopeful expectation of the fulfillment of the promise. They knew that God was faithful, but they also knew that God works on his own timeline. God is not accountable to anyone. That's what it means to be God. 
God has no supervisor. He answers to no one. He is in himself the highest authority, for if he could appeal to a higher authority to ground his authority, then that thing he appealed to would actually be God. He is the highest authority. There is no appeal after him. There's no questioning what he does. He works out his purposes and plans, and I want you to note this, God is never late. What then does this mean, among other things, for us? What it means is that we dare not question the faithfulness of God simply because he does not conform to our timeline. You or I may say, but God, I've been waiting for decades. What is decades to the author of time? Does not 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 warn us against such thinking? It states, but do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's timing is perfect according to his plan, even when he chooses to take a thousand years to fulfill his promise. For what is a thousand years to the Lord? It's but a day. And day but a thousand years, which is to say, he does not relate to time the way that we do. And he is never slow, he is never late in the fulfillment of his promise. Now, what you could potentially hear in that moment, and I want to be pastorally aware of, is the fact that it's like, but I need help right now, Lord. That's true. And it sounds like what you're saying, Pastor, is, is, that, is that God doesn't care. He's not inclined. He's not, he's not paying attention to, to my needs. I want you to hear me very clearly. In the same way that we are going to talk about the faithfulness of God and the fact that he kept his word after a thousand years, he also reveals through the same apostle that he is not indifferent to our suffering or our circumstances. Your heavenly father hears you. I believe what we need to recognize, though, is that he's simply working on a more permanent, eternal solution many times. Note what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, to that Christian who's struggling, wanting to know, why is it that in the moment the Lord has not come through as I've asked? Paul says, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And then Paul, of all people, and if you look and study his life, it's hard to believe he even says this. He is, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of those afflictions. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, brothers and sisters, the Lord is not slow. He is always on time. Just as with the birth of Jesus fulfilling promises from a thousand years before. He is faithful. He can be trusted even when his faithfulness doesn't fit our timelines. Which is important for us as we think about the next generation to not become a a grumbling 
people that question whether or not God is going to be faithful. Because you can see what could potentially happen in the life of the Israelites if decade after decade after decade, generation after generation after generation, they were, they were pointing back to the promise and they were saying, you know, it didn't come this year, it didn't come this year, it didn't come this year. I think one of the ways that this is important to us is based on the fact that not only in the Advent are we remembering the fact that Christ came once, it's that he's coming again. And that we can grow cold and apathetic to the reality that he is going to return. And some people start to say with them among themselves, oh, you know, it's no big deal. He hadn't come yet. He's going to come again. And what does Second Peter tell us and remind us? Oh, he's not slow the way you count slowness. The reason why he tarries is so that others would come to repentance. So you may be sitting there going, oh, he's not going to return. I don't have to care and worry about those things. And what he wants you to hear is, is the reason why I'm not returning yet is to give you a chance to repent and get right with me. We need to think of his faithfulness. If he was faithful to come after a thousand years, is he not faithful to come again? He is faithful. So it's one of the things that we find in this passage this morning. that the gospel reveals God's faithfulness to his promises. So he doesn't conform to our timelines. But what else can we learn from this verse? Regarding his son, who has his earthly life, was a descendant of David and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. What do we gain? What do we learn from this about his faithfulness? Not only have we seen that God is faithful according to his own timeline, but now that we see God's faithfulness may sometimes not conform to our perception of what we need. There are two parts in this verse. Jesus' earthly life of humility and obedience as a descendant of David, and Jesus' exalted life of glory and power as the resurrected Lord over all. Well, many of us are familiar with this story. Many within the first century, those being first century Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, they did not really have a category for the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, that would come and he would suffer. They had an expectation of what they needed based upon what they wanted. What did they want? They wanted a descendant that would come from David, that would rule over them as his people, and that he would overthrow the other nations that oppressed and harassed his people. The people of Israel were looking for a military savior, a political savior. But Jesus came in humility and meekness, donning an apron, washing the feet of his servants. He described himself as gentle and lowly. This was not the military savior that the people were looking for, that they were certain that that's what they needed in the moment. And furthermore, with Jesus' death, people believed that there was no way that the chosen one, the one that had been appointed by God to save us from our sins, the son of David, that he would ever die. No, he would have to reign forever. So when Jesus came in the flesh as he did, they didn't have a category for it because he was so different from what they expected or they thought that they needed. But while Christ came in humility, 
for humility was necessary for the fulfillment of his work. He did not remain in this humiliated state, which is what the second part of the verse is about. He died, but he was raised to life. And having been raised as a vindication for the fulfillment of his work and the inauguration of a new creation into the old, he now possessed the name that was above every name and that all authority belonged to him. He is Lord. What this means for us, among so many other things, is that when we think of God's faithfulness, we need to remember that not only does God have his own timeline, but God knows what we need far better than we know ourselves. What do I mean by this? I mean that if the Jews had gotten their way, Jesus as the son of David would have been given an army and told to overthrow Rome. They believed they needed political salvation. Yet Jesus knew that what they needed deeply was a personal salvation. They needed to be transformed from the inside out. Their hearts of stone needed to be replaced with hearts of flesh. They needed salvation from above as Jesus confounded the wisdom of Nicodemus in John 3 in telling him, you must be born again. You need to be new, created new by the work of the Spirit. But they didn't realize this. I'm sure that for many of those that are watching and that are here listening today, this is the same. No, not that you're thinking that Jesus that you need is a political or military savior in the same way the Jews did. But rather that when you think about what Jesus ought to be, you have your own perception of what he must look like. So I was studying for this. I, I came across just a great reflection that will leave everyone mildly offended, which is good. It's, it's equal opportunity. But Kevin D. Young is a pastor speaks about the ways that we have a tendency as Christians to alter the image of Jesus to conform to our personal preferences. And so I want you to receive this the way I had to receive it whenever I was studying it this week. He writes, and this is extended. He says, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in the Son, and the glory of the gospel is only made evident in his Son. That is why Jesus' question to his disciples is so important. Why or who do you say that I am? He goes on to say, this question is doubly crucial in our day because not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Almost no one is as popular in this country, speaking of the United States, as Jesus. Hardly anyone would dare to say a bad word about Jesus. Just look at that super fly, friendly dude standing over there. But how many people know the real Jesus? He just goes through a list of all the Jesuses that we have collected for ourselves. He says, there's the Republican Jesus, who's against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's the Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's the therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, healing our past, telling us how valuable that we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's the Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. 
There is martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so that we can feel sorry for him. There is gentle Jesus who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot, wearing a sash and kind of looks German. There is hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and help us to remember that all we need is love. There is yuppie Jesus, I would say this is health, wealth, prosperity Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There is spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, church, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and he wants us to find the God within us and listen to the ambiguously spiritual music. There is platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so that we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. Then, for those of you that grew up in the 90s in youth group culture, there's Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around you as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There is Good Example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then he says, and then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they'd been waiting for. The son of David and Abraham's chosen seed that would one day deliver them from their captivity. The goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God that would come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator, come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant. The Christ predicted to the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of our current mood or projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and our God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and a substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. End quote. When we reflect on not only the timing of God's faithfulness, but also the nature of it, I believe that we have to stand in awe and confess that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But nonetheless, he is faithful. He keeps his word, even if it confounds our own wisdom. Paul preached the message of the faithfulness of God that was revealed in the gospel of Christ that we might know that he can be trusted. How can we be sure that he can be trusted? He kept his promises in the past. Will he not keep his promises in the future? He is faithful. He has demonstrated his faithfulness in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. And he invites us, he calls us to place our trust in him. He is worthy. He is faithful. Would you pray with me? 
As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equip for Good. Thanks for listening.